0: So today, today we're, we're still focused on individual consciousness. Uh, why, you might ask? Well, as the <coughs> site or model for symbolic patterning of one sort or another, uh, uh, we can speak of the psychogenesis of the text or film. Perhaps in the case certainly of Zizek, uh, to some extent also of Deleuze. uh, And and therefore, we can still understand today's readings, unlike uh, Thursday's readings, as belonging to the psychological emphasis uh, in our syllabus. This is actually our farewell to the psychological emphasis. And uh, it is uh, so arranged because. There are intimations in today's authors that there are political stakes. That is to say, in one way or another, we are to understand their argument about the way in which the psyche functions as as having political implications. Uh, Zizek uh, is fascinating, it seems to me, in his brilliant reading of The Crying Game. Uh, At the very end of your essay, in the moment when he says, look, this isn't just a kind of abdication from responsibility for um, uh, the Irish Republican Revolution. Uh, the, the soldier has not merely walked away uh, from his role in revolutionary activity. He has discovered in his private life, that is to say, in the in, in, in the erotic dimension of his consciousness, the need for revolution from within. He has disrupted his, necessarily disrupted his own thinking uh, in ways equally radical to and closely parallel to the disruption of thinking that's required to understand uh, one's relationship with the emerging uh, stat- republican status of Ireland. And so, says Žižek, there are Political implications for the upheaval in consciousness that his uh, it, it ultimately tragic encounter with the big other entails. Uh, I should say, in passing, also about Zizek, that um, as an, uh, your editor, I think, goes into this a little bit in the italicized preface, uh, that there are temptations, political temptations, entailed. In this fascination with uh, an obscure or even perhaps transcendent object of desire for the individual, but also for the social psyche. In religious terms, there is a perhaps surprising or counterintuitive friendliness toward religion. In Zizek's work, on the grounds that faith or the struggle for faith, uh, after all, does constitute um, an effort to enter into some kind of meaningful relationship with that which one desires yet at the same time uh, can't have, and by the same token, and this is where uh, this is where. In certain moments he confesses to a kind of instability in his political thinking, even though he is by and large on the Left and partly needs to be understood as a disciple of Marx. Nevertheless, he recognizes that in politics there's a kind of excitement but also perhaps potential danger in fascination with a big idea. It could be, of course, some form of progressive collectivity. It could, on the other hand, be the kind of big idea that countenances the rise of fascism. Uh, Zizek acknowledges this, that the that public identification with a kind of uh, of almost or completely inaccessible otherness, either as a political idea. or as a charismatic political leader um, can, after all, uh, open up a, a, a vertigo of dangerous possibilities. I use uh, the word vertigo advisedly because I'm going to be coming back to Hitchco- to I'm going to be coming back to Hitchcock's vertigo, uh, vertigo in just a minute. Um, but in the meantime, there are also obviously political stakes in Deleuze. Deleuze, of course, uh, presents to us in, the fir- in this first chapter of his book, A Thousand Plateau, uh, he presents to us a kind of thought experiment, both as something recommended to the reader see if you can think in this new, sort of radically, ra- radically innovative way but also providing a model for thinking of this kind in the style and organization and composition of the chapter itself. So as a thought experiment, uh, once again, uh, uh, Deleuze has to do in thought with what you might call a revolution from within. But the implications, once again, in politics, as indeed also for Zizek, uh, are somewhat ambiguous. That is to say, The rhizomatic mode of thinking, (laughs) and we'll come back (laughs) to the rhizomatic uh, mode of thinking as we go along, um, which is radically de centering uh, and which lends itself to identification with, as it were, the mass movement of collectivity. Can plainly be uh, uh, progressively democratic, that is to say, democratic beyond even what our social and cultural cultural hierarchies accommodate. But at the same time, or I should say, it can once again be fascistic because because, uh, the the organization of fascistic culture, while nevertheless a kind of top-down arrangement with a Fuhrer involves is nevertheless, as uh, the mass is mobilized, nevertheless in this mobilization uh, rhizomatic. Deleuze is careful to point out that, in the rh- that, that, there, that, that rhizomes and rhizomatic thinking is, as he says repeatedly, for the best and worst. <laughs> Rats are rhizomes. Crabgrass is a rhizome. In other words, everything which organizes itself in this fashion uh, is rhizomatic. Much of it, as uh, I'll be coming back to uh, try to explain with a little more care, is for the good in Deleuze's view. By the way, I say Deleuze in the same way I said Wimsat. Gattari is an important colleague and ally. Uh, They wrote many books together, including one that I'll mention later. They also wrote things separately, but Deleuze, Simply because his oeuvre is more ample, and and people feel somehow or another that he's more central to this work, um, is a, is a synecdoche for Deleuze and Gu- and Gatari. And so I'll be saying Deleuze, but I don't mean to slight Gatari. Uh, in any case, uh, so so uh, we'll be will be examining uh, the Deleuzian rhizome a little bit more closely. But in the meantime. Um, as to its political implications, and we are moving closer to the political uh, as we as we begin to think about figures of this kind uh, is really on the admission of both of them somewhat ambiguous. In other words, they're introducing new possibilities of thought, and as, and, and and they're very different from each other, as we'll see. Uh, they're introducing new possibilities of thought, uh, but they're candid enough to admit that they don't quite know. Where these possibilities are going. That is, you know, what, what what the implications or consequences of successfully entering the thought world of either one of them uh, might be. All right, so um, yes, uh, they, c- they certainly have very different ideas. That I I wouldn't blame you for saying, why on earth are we reading these two texts together? Uh, the overlap isn't altogether clear. I'm going to suggest what it is in a minute. But in the meantime, they are certainly on about very different things. Deleuze concerned with the with, as I say, introducing a kind of thought experiment which has to do with the decentering of thought, getting away from the tree or arboresque model of thought. We'll have more to say about that. And Zuzek, on the other hand, following Lacan's distinction between the object ready-to-hand that you can have if you want, and the object of desire, which such is the chain of signification, is perpetually something that exceeds or outdistances our grasp in developing this idea. and Thinking about what the object desire in all of its manifold forms might be develops this curious idea, which is at the center of his thinking, of the blot, that it, that the, the element in narrative form, the element in the way in which our storytelling capacities are organized, which really can't be narrated, which, narrated, which really can't lend itself to meaning, meaning, of course, concrete, specific meaning, being that which can be tied down <laughs> to, a, to an accessible object. And so so the the central idea that Zizek is attempting to develop in his essay is this has to do with this notion of the relationship between the uh, big other and the blot, as we'll see. So these 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 strike one as being extremely different ideas. And as I say, I wouldn't blame you for wondering uh, just what overlap there can be. Well, at the same time, I would think that as you read these two uh, rather th- the somewhat uh, bouncy and frantic prose of both of these of both of these texts, you did see that they had a kind of mood or stance or orientation toward the critical and theoretical project in common. They seem, in other words. To be of the same moment. I mean, even though their ideas seem to, to to be so very different, that basic ideas they're trying to get across seem to be so very different. You could perhaps imagine these two texts as being written, if it was just a question of considering their style. By the same person. Uh, I, I actually, I think that's not quite true. But at the same time, these, the 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 kind of high energy, too caffeinated uh, feeling that you get from the prose uh, of both uh, is, is is something that might give you pause uh, and ask and and make you wonder. Well, just sort of what what moment um, does this belong to? The answer is important and in a way obvious. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure all of you are ready to tell me what moment it belongs to. It belongs to postmodernism. These are are two exemplars of what is by far the most slippery Um, if one likes it one wants to say versatile, (laughs) if one doesn't like it one wants to say murky concepts uh, to which we've been exposed in the last twenty or thirty years. um, I think that in a way we can bring them both uh, into focus as a pair a little bit, if we pause somewhat simply over the concept postmodernism. I mean, maybe that's one of the things you wanted to learn in taking a course like this. So, so uh, I'm I'm just providing a service. Um, you know, <laughs> po- so 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 postmodernism. What is what is postmodernism? I think we know what it is in artistic expression. Uh, We've we've encountered enough examples of it. Uh, We we have perhaps even taken courses in which, in the context of artistic form and expression, (laughs) it has come up. Postmodernism and artistic expression, particularly in the visual arts, but I think this is is true of of, of certain movements in both narrative and poetry as well. Postmodernism is an eclectic orientation to the past. In a certain sense, it's a return to the past. It's an opening up of textual possibility to traditions and historical moments of expression which Modernism had tended to suppose obsolete and to have set aside. So that in artistic expression, as I say, postmodernism is an eclectic return to possibilities thrown up by the history of art. And literature. So that, I mean, in architecture, um, many examples are quite extraordinary, and many, unfortunately, are also hideous. You know that there was a certain point fifteen or twenty years ago when every strip mall, every shopping mall was redecorated, or what's the word I want? Renovated. Every shopping mall was renovated. And how did they renovate it? Uh, they'd been flat, you know. They'd been sort of Mies van der Rohe, sort of 60s modern before then. They just sat there flat. And so the renovators came along and put little gables on, on, the, on the shopping mall so that each, each little shop in the mall now has a gable. And this is postmodern. And the most awful things were done with suburban houses, also, also in the name of a of of a kind of blind, completely, completely tasteless return to the neoclassical and and certain other aspects of tradition. So the postmodern in. What you might call suburban culture has been pretty awful, Uh, but at the same time it has entailed a great deal of interesting work in painting. All of a sudden you know the New York scene isn't just one school, and that's the sign of it. It's not just a certain kind of abstraction. It's not just a a wholesale uh, return agreed on by everyone to realism. It's a mixture of everything. Uh, so that so that every it's not just aqua- art artists are always just completely obsessed with their place in art history. It's not just groups of artists together wanting to identify a certain place for themselves in art history. It's every artist in a kind of anarchic independence from the thinking of other artists, uh, coming to terms with art history in his or her own way. Uh, so that the scene the art scenes of New York and Berlin and Los Angeles and so on, the scene isn't something that you can identify as having a certain character anymore. It's postmodern precisely in that it's gone global, it has a million influences and sources, and there is very little agreement among artists about how to amalgamate and put these sources together. So that in terms of artistic expression, the way in which the, the postmodern moment, after modernism, in other words, the postmodern moment uh, presents itself, and I, and I put it deliberately as a medical symptom, the way that the way the postmodern mo- moment presents uh, in, in artistic expression. Now, um, philosophically, philosophically, Postmodernism can be understood about as doubt not just about the grounds of knowledge or you know, the, the, ver- the widespread sorts of doubt, which, which we've been talking about more or less continuously in this course. It can be understood as doubt in particular about the relationship between or among parts and wholes. In other words, can I be sure that my leg is part of my body when plainly, it is at the same time a hole with respect to my foot. How, how is it that I know uh, in any stable way what a part or a hole is? To take a more interesting example, uh, this, this is in Wittgenstein's philo- Philosophical Investigations. There is the flag, the French flag, which is called the tricolor. Right? Now the tricolor is made up of three strips of color, white, blue, and red. I'm sorry if I've gotten the order wrong. <laughs> In fact, I'm almost positive that I have <laughs> uh, um, but there are those three strips of color uh, existing in relation to each other, and plainly those three strips of color are parts of the flag, and they, ha- and, and they have a certain symbolic value. That is to say, each color uh, represents something uh, and, enters and enters into the symbolic understanding of what the flag is. But at the same time, red, white, and blue, uh, sorry, yes, red, white, and blue aren't confined to this piece of cloth. The little strips of white, red, and blue are obviously parts uh, of whiteness. They can't be they can't be understood um, as parts simply in and of themselves or parts specifically of one thing. They're parts of other things as well. But what's more, you know, if you look at the tricolor without knowing what you're looking at, uh, how can you say that it's the part of a whole? You say, well, you know, they're just they're just parts. Uh, they are, or they're holes unto themselves, which somebody happens to have laid uh, side by side. By the same token, if uh, you look at the part of the tricolor which is white, and you say white. Well obviously with respect to the vast universalizing concept white a little flag is simply a kind of metonymic relationship with that sense of white but to, but but to concretize this idea of the problematic relationship between part and whole in a different way how can we be why are we so confident about what we see as 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 most of you know I'm sure Philosophical thinking tends to be tyrannized by metaphors of vision. We assume that we understand reality because um, not altogether as consciously metaphorically in in speaking about this as perhaps we might be, um, we say that we can see it. how do you see it? You see it because of the lensing or focusing capacities of the eye which exercise a certain tyranny over the nature of what you see. If you look too closely at something, all you can see is dots. If you close your if you look at something and close your eyes, uh, that too becomes a kind of vast retinal Mark Toby painting. And 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 you know, it has a relation to what to what to what you see. But is at the same time something very different. So if you get too far away from objects, they dissolve. What you thought was an object dissolves into a much vaster, greater space, which uh, has seems to have another objective nature. The space that you, s- if you're in a jet and you're looking down, uh, what you're seeing certainly looks like it has form and structure. But the form and structure is not at all what you're seeing if you're standing on the ground uh, looking at exactly the same, shall we say, uh, square footage uh, insofar as you can. You're simply seeing different things, and if you recognize what might be called the tyranny of focus in the way in which we orient ourselves to the world, you can see that this perpetual dissolve and refocus, constituting objects perpetually in new ways. And this happens too, you know, in the history of science. Uh, the relationship between subatomic particles sometimes turns itself inside out, and the particle that you thought was the fundamental unit uh, turns out, in fact, to have, uh, to, 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 to have uh, within it a fundamental unit of which it is a part. And there, and I mean, all of this uh, was—I'm just—I'm just just referring to what happened during the golden age of the linear accelerator, when when uh, when all sorts of remarkable sort of inversions of what's taken to be fundamental um, seemed uh, to be uh, made available by the experimental data. So that in all of these ways, uh, ranging from scientific to uh, to to the most subjectively visual ways. Of understanding the world, there are possibilities of doubt that can be raised about part-whole relations. What is a whole? How do we define a unity? Should we be preoccupied with the nature of reality as a set of unities? Obviously, Deleuze is extremely upset about this. He doesn't want anything to do with unity. Uh, He doesn't. he, He he his whole the whole function. Of his thought uh, experiment is the decentering of things, such that one can no longer talk about units or holes uh, or isolated entities. It's the being together and merging together and flying apart uh, and reuniting and kinesis, movement of entities, if they can even be called entities, that Deleuze is concerned with. Now another aspect of the postmodern is what the postmodern philosopher uh, uh, Jean-François Lyotard, in particular, has called the inhuman or the process of the dehumanization of the human. Now this isn't this this is a weird term to choose because it's not at all anti-humanistic. It's really a new way of thinking about the human. Deleuze, you'll notice, talks not just here in this this episode but repeatedly throughout his work, uh, which is why he has so little to say about it here that's explanatory. He talks about organs without bodies. That might have brought you up short, Uh, but what it suggests is that we are, as Deleuze would put it, machinic rather than organic. Uh, If the problem with centered thought, is that it thinks of everything as arboreal, as a tree. That problem has to do with the fact that a tree is understood in its symbolic extensions to have organs. The roots are muscles and circulation. The blossoms are genital in nature. The crown or canopy of leaves is the mind of the tree reaching up to the sky, the mentality of the tree. And by the same token, if we think of our own bodies as arboreal, we think of certain parts of those bodies as cognitive, other parts of those bodies as having agency, as doing things. And if that's the case, then we think of a centered uh, uh, and, and ultimately genital or genetic understanding of the body as being productive. Deleuze wants to understand the body as being interactive, as being uh, polymorphous perverse, among other things. He wants to to understand it as being everywhere and nowhere, uh, an unsituated body among other bodies, and in order for this to happen its interface with other things has to be without agency and also without without Cognitive uh, intention uh, on the model of I think, therefore I am. The world comes into being because I think uh, without any of this uh, in play. In other words, we, the, de- the dehumanization of the postmodern has to do not at all with denying the importance of the human but with this radical way of rethinking the human among other bodies and things. Plainly, this emphasis involves a kind of dissolving into otherness, a continuity between subject and object uh, in which the difference ultimately between what what is inside me, what is authentic or integral to my being me, uh, and what's outside me become completely permeable uh, and interchangeable. The late nineteenth-century uh, author and philosopher, aesthetic philosopher Walter Pater, in the conclusion to a famous book of his called the Renaissance, had a wonderful way of putting this. He said, we're too used to thinking that we're in here and everything else is out there and that somehow or another our perspective on everything out is a kind of, of, of uh, saving isolation, our I- I- I enabling our power of objectivity. But then Pater says, how can this be? Because we're made up of the same things that's out there. We too are molecular, in other words. What is in us rusts iron and ripens corn. There is a continuousness between the inside feeling we have about ourselves and the, extori- the exteriority with, we are, with which we are constantly coming in contact. Uh, so, this is, I, I mean, Deleuze and, and Guattari, of course, um, have their own um, excited, jumpy way of putting these things, but it's not really a new idea that we exaggerate the isolation of consciousness from its surroundings. There is a, there is a permeability of inside and outside that this kind of rhizomic or decentered thinking. Uh, is meant to focus on. Now, <coughs> you could say that what Deleuze is interested in, I- if you go back to our coordinates wha- that we kept, you know, when we're when we're talking about the Formalist Saussure through structuralism, through deconstruction, if you go back to those coordinates, you could say that what Deleuze is interested in, uh, like so many others we've read, is a rendering virtual or possibly even eliminating of the vertical axis, in other words of that center or head or crown of the tree <laughs> which constitutes everything that unfolds on the horizontal axis, be it language, be it the unconscious structured like a language, be it whatever it might be. You could say that, uh, the, that, that the project of Deleuze, too, is the undoing or rendering virtual, vir- virtual of this vertical axis. Well, th- in a way I think that's true, but then what is the horizontal axis? Th- that, that is where the relation of Deleuze to, let's say, deconstruction becomes uh, a little problematic and where we can actually see a difference. I'm going to compare him in this one respect with Lacan, but I want to hasten to point out, uh, as I will in a minute, uh, a divergence from Lacan as well. You remember that in Lacan's Agency of the Letter essay, he says, you know, he he doesn't just talk about the axis of combination as a series of concentric circles, each one of which is made up of little concentric circles. He He doesn't just talk about that. He also talks about the way in which the combinatory uh, powers of the imaginary in language or desire in language take place is like a musical staff. And, the w- and so that the organization of signs in their contiguity with each other can be either melodic or harmonic. Uh, but in any case, the you can't just think of the axis of combination as a complete linearity. It has, it has a dimensionality of different kinds. Well, for for a, and that's why Deleuze and Guattari introduced the concept of plateau. Toward the end of your excerpt, the book uh, in which your excerpt appears is called A Thousand Plateaus. Uh, and ultimately the concept of plateau is even more important to them than the concept of rhizome. When they introduce the concept of plateau, they're doing exactly the same thing. They're saying, we jump from sign cluster to sign cluster, and not all sign clusters are linear and uniform. This is where there is perhaps a difference from deconstruction. Deleuze and Guattari are interested in multiplicity of coding, as they put it. They're interested in the the way in which um, When I think, I'm not just thinking in language, I'm not just thinking uh, pictorially, I'm not just thinking musically, uh, but I am leaping around among codes so that uh, the actual thought process is eclectic in this way. Um, Now, you could say that this is something actually anticipated also by Lacan. You remember also in the agency essay. That Lacan reminds us, uh, true inheritor of Freud, which he takes himself to be, Lacan reminds us that at the beginning of the interpretation of dreams, Freud said that the decoding, the dream work, is like figuring out the puzzle of a rebus, a rebus being one of those uh, uh, trick sentences which are made up not exclusively of words but of the odd syllable, but then of pictures. I heart New York. I heart New York uh, is a rebus, uh, and, that, and that the dream work functions constantly in Freud's view as a rebus. So you could say that Lacan already introduces uh, for Deleuze the possibility of thinking of a multiple coding that needs to be decoding uh, on a variety of decoded on a variety of plateaus, if it's going to make any sense. Um, now, De- Deleuze's relationship with all the figures we've been reading is rather problematic, really. Um, the book preceding *A Thousand Plateaus* was called *Anti-Oedipus*. And it is a, a continuous, systematic attack on Fro- on on the I- uh, he always calls Freud the general, uh, and the, I- the the idea that um, that 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 Freud feels that the whole of our psychic lives is completely saturated and 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 dominated by the Oedipus complex. And Deleuze, you know, with his idea of decentered thinking of, ry- of the rhizome, uh, sets out to show, in a variety of ways, how limiting uh, and how unfortunate for the legacy of psychoanalysis this kind of, 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 of focus on a particular issue turns out to be. I, this, is, uh, this is Deleuze's critique of Freud, not mine, and it's and and. You would think that Deleuze then would be a lot closer to Lacan, just f- j- for the reasons that I've just described. But, you know, Lacan, too. There's a, uh, at the very bottom of page, uh, what page is it? At the very bottom, bottom of, um, uh, in your text, uh, 034, left, uh, on the, uh, the right hand column, very bottom of the page. He says, it is no accident that psychoanalysis linked its destiny with linguistics. Now, it's, it's impossible to say, I think, quite by design, it's impossible to say whether Deleuze is referring to Freud or Lacan in saying that, because it's Lacan who claims that Freud said it. In other words, that the interpretation of dreams is the text in which we discover that the unconscious is structured like a language. Uh, but at the same time uh, 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 posterity has taken uh, Lacan's focus on linguistics to be a massive, perhaps inappropriate, revision of Freud uh, and uh, to be a very different matter. So uh, it's interesting that Deleuze quite ambiguously seems to suppose for us that Freud uh, and Lacan are part and parcel of each other. and The reason he can do that is that, he is interested in uh, a form of thinking about language which no linguistics has successfully uh, accommodated, as far as he's concerned. In other words, he, he keeps talking about Chomsky. Uh, you know, uh, Chomsky seems to be, in a way, the villain of your essay. Uh, but, but I think, in a way, that's just a way of evading talking about Saussure because you wouldn't want to get in trouble with all those structuralists. Uh, uh, because Saussure too, uh the problem with Saussure too, is that there is a certain tyranny or arboresque tendency in Saussurean thinking uh, to be focused on the binary that is, the relationship between the signified and signifier uh, as fixed. Uh, as inflexible as lacking in what Derrida would call free play, uh, and therefore too a kind of a, a kind of, of tyranny. So very quickly on the rhizome: How do we know a rhizome when we see it? I think probably, in the long run, whatever frustrations uh, 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 the Deleuze's essay puts in your path, I think probably in the long run. You're pretty clear on what a rhizome is, but if, but, if, but if there's any lingering doubt, just think about the flu. Um, you, there, what, there is uh, what Deleuze calls rhizomatic flu. That's something we get from other people. The circulation of disease as we all come down with it around midterm period, the circulation of disease is rhizomatic. It's a perfect example of uh, to use another, to, to use another instance from, from Deleuze, the relationship between the wasp and the orchid. The wasp, like the, like the, the virus, um, sort of flits about from blossom to blossom, descends, and then constitutes the flu. And by contrast, there is hereditary disease, that is, that which is lurking in us uh, because we're programmed for it, we're hardwired for it. Uh, it, is, it is genetically in our nature, and this uh, Deleuze associates with, arbore- with the arboresque. It, is, uh, it comes from an origin. It is, it is something that is a cause within us or a cause standing behind us as opposed to something coming out of left field uh, in an arbitrary and unpredictable fashion and descending on us, perhaps also not unlike Tinyanov's distinction between modification and evolution. The arboresque evolves, <laughs> the rhizomatic is modification, that, you know, we the, 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 the give and take of tensions among entities, the rats tumbling over each other, the maze of the burrow, the spreading of crabgrass—all of this, all of this has a kind of randomness, uh, unpredictability, uh, the power of linkage at all conceivable points without any with, with, without any predictability. Uh, all of this uh, is entailed in the rhizomatic. Now, as to what's being attacked, and again, the value systems surrounding these things are not absolute. Deleuze is not going so far as to say arboresque bad, rhizomatic good. He's coming pretty close to it, but he acknowledges the perils, as I say, of the rhizomatic. But in the meantime, just one point in passing, because I'm running out of time to talk about Zizek, just one point in passing about the arboresque. There are actually, in the first pages of your essay, two forms of it. One is what he calls the root book, the the traditional classical book which presents to you a theme. I am going to write about so-and-so and and I'm going to do so systematically uh, one thing at a time in a series of chapters. That's the root book. But then there's what he calls the fascicle book, the, uh, a book which consists of complicated offshoots of roots but nevertheless entailing a taproot. And this is what he associates with modernism precisely in your text. He says the fascicle book is like Joyce's Ulysses. Everything, including the kitchen sink, is in it. It looks as though it were totally rhizomatic, but it is, of course, controlled by, unified by, brought into coherence, by a single uh, focusing authorial consciousness, so that it is not truly rhizomatic, it's a fascicle book. Here, Thousand Plateaus is going to be a rhizomatic book, so you have not just two kinds of books uh, in this idea but three. All right then, very quickly, about Zizek. I think it can help us understand uh, Lacan. I I hope you agree in having read it, but I think in a way it also takes us back or or allows us to revisit uh, Peter Brooks. Uh, the the uh, the best example it seems to me of the way in which uh, the tension of desire in narrative works for Zizek is is although these are splendid examples, and I think and I think largely self-explanatory. I th- the best example is actually in another book by Zizek. Called Everything You Wanted to Know About Lacan, but Were Afraid to Ask Hitchcock. And, 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 and in that book, uh, of course, you get a lot of attention pa- paid to Vertigo. And just think about Vertigo as an instance of the kind of plot Zizek is talking about. You know, there's that, I've forgotten her name, but there's there's that really nice woman. You remember the painter, you know. <laughs> And Jimmy Stewart just pays absolutely no attention to her. She's right there. She's available. She's in love with him. Oh, you know, he doesn't even see her except as a confidant. Uh, you know, oh yes, you. Uh, uh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, but, uh, but, but he is, on the other hand, obsessed with, with a woman who, whose identity he can't even be sure of. It's not, it's not just that she's inaccessible. For some reason, that she's that 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 she's a distant object of desire. Her identity and the question of whether or not she's being playacted by somebody else remains completely unclear. Unclear for many spectators, even as they watch the ending of the film, completely unclear. And that is an obscure, not just a distant, but an obscure object of desire. And of course, the premise of her inaccessibility is what. Drives the plot. Now, I think that the interst- that it's interesting to think about the relationship between the element of detour and delay, as Žižek implies it, in understanding narrative. Uh, the relationship between that and what Peter Brooks is talking about. Peter Brooks is uh, is is talking about the way in which middles in plots protract themselves through uh, episodes, all of which manifest some sort of Imbalance or need for uh, need for further uh, uh, repetition in a new key, and much of this had because the characteristic plot of the kind of fiction Brooks is mainly thinking about is the marriage plot. Much of this has to do with inappropriate object choice, which uh, indeed um, can also, in many cases, a la what I began by mentioning in Zizek. Politic- inappropriate political object choice. Think, for example, about the plot of James's Princess Casamassima in that regard. Uh, uh, poor Hyacinth Robinson uh, strikes out on both counts in rather completely parallel ways. He, he's, he ends up on the wrong side of politics. He ends up on the wrong side of love, uh, and in a way the Princess, Casamass- Princess Casamassima is an exploration of these two sides of the issue. But so, in any case, uh, for Brooks, the resolution of the plot is a way in which closure can be achieved. It is, the, it, 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 it is a final moment of equilibrium, as one might say, or quiet, or reduction of excitation, such that the Freudian death wish can be realized, as we know. In the way we want it to be realized, as opposed to uh, our being afflicted by something from the outside. So, so in Brooks, whose closest ties are to structuralism, there is a sense, there is is an achieved sense of closure, which is an important aspect of what's admirable in fiction. Zizek is more postmodern. Zizek sees, following Lacan, he sees the object of desire as um, uh, asymptotic as being uh, ultimately and always inaccessible, or if it becomes accessible uh, as, for example, on page 1193 in the right-hand column, or one might say almost accessible, this gives rise to as many problems uh, as it seems to eliminate. Bottom right-hand column, page 1193. Zizek says, (coughs) Perhaps in courtly love itself the long-awaited moment of highest fulfillment, when the lady renders gnada, mercy, to her servant, is not the lady's surrender, not her consent to the sexual act, nor some mysterious rite of initiation, but simply a sign of love on the part of the lady, the miracle that the object answered, stretching its hand out to the supplicant. The object, in other words, has become subject in this moment of exchange or mutuality of recognition or becoming human on the part of the lady whom, uh, whom of course, Zizek has been associated with the dominatrix uh, in a sadistic relationship. Um, In this moment of becoming human, of offering love, the object becomes more accessible. That is to say, there is now the possibility of some form of mutuality, but in becoming more accessible, the energy of desire is threatened with dissolution. In other words, closure in Zizek is a threat to the energy of desire. Desire is something which inheres in our very language, according to Zizek. And which uh, and 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 which were it to be understood as 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 brought to closure. The lady, you know, the, 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 I mean, Zizek gives lots of examples of the lady, you know, after all this sort of seeming inaccessibility, says, "Sure, why not? You know, of course." Uh, and and you know, and, and and the person is and and the person is completely upset and then refuses, uh, refuses the act because. Uh, there's nothing more to desire. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the whole structure of that energy that drives language, that drives consciousness, comes tumbling to the ground and desire has become need. It's become sort of merely a matter of, uh, of gratification through what's ready to hand, uh, and no longer a question of sustaining a dream. And this and, and, and this, generally speaking, is what Zizek wants to focus on in talking about these plots. The, d- the object of desire must be not just distant, but also obscure. I'm going to make two more points. First of all, as you can no doubt tell, this is a perfect replica of Hans Holbein's The Ambassadors. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'd, be am- I'd be amazed uh, if anyone in the room hadn't recognized it. Um, but th- there it is, there it is. Um, there's two guys. There's a table between them. They are negotiating, probably, over one of Henry VIII's marriages, and this, I think, is not insignificant. They are there, you know, in the service of Henry VIII, negotiating one of those extremely complicated marriages, possibly even the one that led to the uh, the uh, abdication. Uh, uh, of the Anglican Church from the Roman Catholic Church. Who knows? Who knows? But the lore about the painting is that it has to do with the negotiation of an object of desire, and that object is absent. In other words, it's something really only implied by the painting. In the foreground of the painting, notorious to art historians, there's this thing. Now this is pretty much what's in the painting. I, yeah, I This is not a replica of the two guys standing there, but this is pretty much what you see when you look at the foreground of the painting. If you look sort of from the side, it turns into something very much like a skull. And Generally speaking, there's a kind of consensus among scholars that it may be a a weirdly distorted shadow or representation of a skull. Although what a skull is doing in the foreground, of course, uh, causes us to wonder as well. Obviously you can have some ideas on the subject, but it's still um, not exactly realist painting we're talking about if he sticks a skull in the foreground. Well, it it also has a certain resemblance to other things we could mention, uh, but but the main point about it is that we don't really know what it is. It is, in other words, uh, something we've already become familiar with in thinking about Lacan. It is that signifier, that ultimate signifier, which is the obscure object of desire, called sometimes by Lacan the phallus. And it seems simply to be there before us in this painting. Now, both in the book in Hitchco- on Hitchcock, where he finds something like this. In just about every film Hitchcock ever made, and also in Holbein's painting, Žižek calls this the blot. It's, it's, it's. You know, it's all We have nothing else to call it. It's a blot. What's it doing there? It, in, in fiction we would call it irrelevant detail. We can think of. We we can find a way of of placing formally absolutely everything in fiction. The weather, what the flowers on the table, whatever it might be. We can place formally. But there may be something in in fiction which is simply unaccountable. We cannot account for it. And that's the blot. That's the blot for Zizek. All right. Now, finally, on desire and language. There's a part of Zizek's essay which you may have thought of as a digression. Another he's suddenly talking about J. L. Austin's ordinary language philosophy. He's suddenly talking about the linguist uh Ducro's idea of predication. In both cases, what's important about, in, in the one case, the element of performance in any other in any utterance, and in the other case, the dominance of an entire sentence by predication. What's important in both of those elements is that they take over an aspect of language of which they were only supposed to be a part. In other words, in Austin there are both performatives and constatives. But in the long run, the argument of how to do things with words suggests that there are only performatives. I mean, I thought this was a constative. I thought this was just straightforward language, but I can now see an element of performance in it. And that's the way that's that there's a gradual changing of his own mind in Austin's book. Uh, which, um, to which Zizek is sensitive. By the same token, Ducrot talks about the way in which the predicate element of a subject-predicate relation has a kind of energy of agency that simply uh, uh, takes over the grammatical subject uh, and constitutes a kind of performance in the sentence. Performance in both cases meaning desire. When I promise to do something, I also desire to fulfill the promise. When, uh, when When I predicate something, I'm also evoking a desire that that something be the case, possibly through my own instrumentality. This is the argument. That's what Zizek means by desire in language and by the inescapability of desire in language and the way in which it permeates everything we can say to each other and most particularly the way in which it permeates the plot or, as they say in film studies, diegesis of the kinds of filmic examples that Zizek gives us. Uh, I'd better stop there. Uh, I I hope that this somewhat rapid-fire survey of some key ideas in these texts are helpful, and I think in the long run, perhaps I hope mainly, that you see these two Energetic authors as exemplars of what we call postmodernism and see the relevance of the concept of the postmodern to the study of literary theory.